No fate I dread, for I know I am forgiven. Is that you? I sure hope it is. Take your Bible and turn with me back to the book of Galatians. Thank you, Kirby, for serving us in the Word. But we're going to keep working through this great section of the Word of God. So take your sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and find the book of Galatians and the fourth chapter. Now, the Bible tells us and teaches us that when Christians are being matured in the faith and growing in the Word of God and in your walk with God, that one of the characteristics of God's people and being God's kind of church is that we will speak the truth in love to one another, to help one another, not to hurt one another. And one of the things that's going on in the book of Galatians is that Paul is speaking the truth, but it's the hard truth to the Galatians, and he is speaking it to them in love. Look at chapter 4, verse 16, 416. So have I become your enemy by telling you the, what's the Bible say? By telling you the what? The truth. But it's a hard truth to them. But he does convey it to them in love. Ten times in the book of Galatians, he calls them brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, in this section that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in verses 12 through 20, he is pouring out his heart to them. He is telling them how much they mean to him and how much they meant to him, how much they cared about him, even the fact that he makes this statement Where is that sense of blessing you had? I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me, verse 15 of this same chapter. But there's, there's a sense in which he's concerned that that might be lost. And that's why he says in verse 20 at the very end of it, I'm perplexed about you. I am very much concerned about you. Now, in verses 21, Lord willing, through verse 31 today, and actually chapter 5, verse 1, because the divisions in our Bible, you know, are not inspired by the God of heaven. And really, it doesn't end in verse 31, chapter uh, 4. It really ends, in my opinion, chapter 5, verse 1. And I know that's a big section, but we plan to be here a couple hours this morning, all right? But in this section, Paul is is not... uh, just expressing his love for them so much, though he's continuing to tell the truth. But in this section, the the Apostle Paul is putting on the lawyer's robe and he's presenting a case. And he's presenting a case with reference to a couple of possibilities, and one has to do with reference to the law. And if anybody understood the law, the Mosaic law and the Old Testament law, that was given, it was the Apostle Paul. You remember when he gives his personal testimony. He says, as to the law of Pharisee, and the Pharisees were the ones who knew the law as much as anybody else could study the law. Oftentimes, the Pharisee would know the, the bulk of the first five books of the Old Testament by memory. And then on top of that, the expansion of the law that the Jews placed upon, upon the people. So uh, Paul was an expert in the law, and in this section in verse 21, through verse chapter 5, verse 1. He is a lawyer, 
And as a brilliant lawyer, he's making his case. And he's saying in verse 21, well, look at it with me, because he he really introduces it in verse 21. And notice how he somewhat changes tone here. He says, tell me, and it's an imperative. It could be translated, hey, you tell me. You tell me. You who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? Notice the definite article. You, you, say, you, you say you want to be under law, but do you really know what the law requires of you? Where it takes you? Where it leads to? And what Paul's going to develop is that it's going to lead you right back to a form of the life that you would now live, that actually you lived before you came to Christ. Look back with me at verse chapter 4, verse 3. So also we, while we were children, we were held or were held in bondage. And Paul is going to show through the law and by his expert ability to make his case as a lawyer that if you're going to add the law to the gospel, you're going to go right back into bondage. So notice, again, look with me in verse 21. He says, tell me, tell me, you want to be under law? You want to place yourself under the law? Well, you do not listen to the law as you ought to listen and realize where it's going to, where it's going to lead you. So in verse 22 and 23, then, he presents a comparison based upon a historical event to help them see this. And that's in verse 23 through verse, really through verse 27. Actually, he's interpreting what he's going to say. The challenge is in verse 22 and 23 that he's going to make, this comparison. And then in verse 24, I'm kind of giving you an outline of the text. Through verse 27, he interprets it, or he builds upon it. And then he does what a good preacher should always do, and that is in verse 28, really through 5.1, he brings it home to us. He makes an application of the challenging that he's presenting in those verses. So that's the flow of the text that we have. So he asks that question. He makes, he makes the challenge to them. And then he begins this comparison to develop his case in verse 22 and 23. So follow along as I read those verses after he, after he has asked that question. Here we go, 22 and 23. He's going to present a comparison, an analogy. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, Now, if you're going to be technical, you know that he had more than two sons, but there are two sons that he's focusing upon in this text, okay? Later on through Katera, he had other sons, but the point here is, because I don't want anybody coming up to me afterwards and saying, you're wrong, Pastor, he had more than two sons, okay? He had others, but the focus of his illustration, we're going to find out, is two, and you probably know who they are already. Look at verse 23, verse 22. It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, and one by the free woman. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. Now the focus in the text is not about Abraham. Paul has spent plenty of time talking about Abraham and what it means to be a son of Abraham by faith. But the focus here is not Abraham. The focus here is two women and two sons and two ways. That's what we've got in this section. The comparison here is about two women, two ways, two sons, and two ways that they came 
into this world. Two moms, two sons, two conditions of the mothers, and two births. And as a matter of fact, if you're like some people and you like a chart, anybody here like a chart? Okay, I'm giving it to you anyhow. If it's on here, let me see. Oh, it isn't. So here's the chart, okay? Well, I've already given it to you. One woman, it's Hagar. The other woman is, can you help me? The other woman is, it is on there. Okay, there it is. There's Hagar and then there's Sarah. I couldn't even preach if I didn't have this chart, amen? Okay? And then we got the two sons. We'll just go through it with me. got the two sons. It's, it's Ishmael and it's, uh-huh. Then we have the two conditions. We've got bondage and we've got, and then, then we've got the way that they came into this world, one by flesh and the other by, by promise. Now, what you could do, if you are thinking biblically right now, you could be saying to yourself, you know, it seems like the Bible always does that. It presents one of two ways. Over and over again in the Bible, you see this particularly in the Proverbs, and that's why it's so relevant with reference to young people. The Proverbs is like a road, and it's got, it, it goes into a Y, and it's got a choice, one of two ways. And in the Bible, continually presented with the reality of God's way, and then there's man's way. God's way and man's way. There's a way which seems right unto a man, Proverbs 14, 12, but the end thereof is destruction. We've got human ability and we've got divine grace. And Paul is starting this comparison to make this point that one way leads to freedom and the other way takes the Galatians and you right back into bondage. And this morning, really, the reality is in your life, you're going God's way right now or you're going your own way. You're under grace or you're under works. And he's going to develop that and drive that home. Immediately you see that with reference to the text. Now, Paul's focus in this particular analogy is the historical account of God's promise to Abraham of a son, of a descendant's, and how that played out over time. So again, the focus is not with reference, though, to Abram. It's these two particular women and so forth that we've seen in the particular text. But it's based upon the fact that God made that promise to Abraham, and he said to Abraham, you are going to be the father of a great nation. All the way back to Genesis chapter 12, part of the what we call the Abrahamic covenant is a descendants and a great nation. And we know that that would involve then a son. But we also know as we read on in Genesis, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to take us all the way from Genesis 15 all the way to chapter 18 and 19, but we know that that involves the reality that as time went on, the text tells us that Sarah was barren. And in Genesis 15, when Abraham was 86 and Sarah was 76, God repeated his promise to Abraham. And he did it this way, remember? He said, look at the stars of the sky. And he said, so shall your descendants be. And Abraham said, oh, I understand. Since I'm 86 and she's 76, you must mean my first number one servant, Elizar. It must be him. And God said, no, it's not him. You're going to have a descendant. Sarah's going to have, have a son. 
And over the period of time later, we come to when Abraham is 90 and Sarah is 80. And if they know anything, they're both well past being able to have children. So it didn't work with reference to what Abraham is thinking. So remember, Sarah says, I've got an idea, right? Somebody said they, they adopted the old saying, um, when, uh, those who help those who help themselves, how do you say that? I've even got it written down. What's the old idea? Oh, God helps those who what? Helps themselves. And so they must have thought, and Sarah's got the idea. She knows if anything's true about me, I'm not going to have a baby. And so when they're that age, again, they try something else. She gives her handmaiden, who is the bondwoman, Hagar, to Abraham as another wife. She's a younger person, you must be going to have a child through, through uh, Hagar, and over a period of time, she does, and that child's name is Ishmael, right? And yet God says again, wait a minute. And when Abraham is 99 and Sarah is 89, God appears again to Abraham. You talk about trusting and waiting. The promise that was made over years, how long have you prayed about something? And they're wondering, God, wait a minute, you're continuing to make this promise. And here he is, 99 and she's 89, and they are well past gaining Social Security. Amen? And God comes and says, about this time next year, what? You're going to baby. And what did, by the way, what did they both do? When Abraham first heard that news earlier, he laughed. And when Sarah heard the news, she likewise laughed. And who would blame them? Amen? Never forget what God said to Sarah and what he said to both of them. He said, is anything too hard for me? Remember that when you pray. When you remember, ask God to work in people's hearts. Remember God, remember that about God when you're trusting him for the things in your life that you're, that you're praying about. Is anything too hard for me? Now, Back to those two verses, 22 and 23, because it is important that you catch the status of the two sons. Ishmael is the son of a bondwoman, that's a slave. And the son of a slave is going to also be a slave. Isaac is the son of a free woman, Sarah. He's born into freedom. There's a difference here that Paul is going to drive home. So you got one in bondage, one in freedom. But also notice the origin of the two sons. One is born according to the flesh. And one is born on the basis of promise. Ishmael comes into this world by natural procreation. That's obvious, right? But he's saying more than that. I agree with all of those who are saying Paul is saying more than that, and it's evident by the context. And that is this. He comes into this world through a human plan devised by two people. Not by divine promise. And it represents human planning, self-effort, man's solution to his dilemma. That's the idea of the way that Ishmael comes into this world. But how does Isaac come into this world? Supernatural means by a miracle, by promise, by God's promise. So Isaac is representing, I can say that, and we're going to develop that further. He represents man's way That is human effort, and we could even say human effort of acquiring righteousness before a holy God. I pushed it that way, but that's the idea. Accomplished by works, by man, by law. 
that keeps you in a position of slavery. If you're here today and you don't really understand what it means to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're in bondage in this sense. If you're going to try to get to God's heaven, you're in bondage to trying to do enough by works to get there. That relates to what he's saying here and what he's developing with the Galatians. But if you're in Christ, this lines you up with Isaac, and that righteousness doesn't come from Isaac, and it doesn't come from Sarah. It comes from God by promise. And he came into this world in a supernatural, miraculous manner. How did you come to faith? By a supernatural, miraculous nature called regeneration, something that you could not do of yourself. God did on behalf of you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he drew you to himself, that was not of you, that was a miracle. And Paul is giving us these two imageries concerning Ishmael and Isaac and concerning the Galatians because they are wavering going back to a form of self-righteousness. And by the way, I want to back up here because I missed Philip Ryken's description then of how this is relating to the Galatians. All right, so I know this is kind of long, but you're going to listen as I read it. Amen? Okay, listen carefully, and you follow along reading it with me. The Apostle Paul himself had traveled to Galatia and south of Asia Minor, preaching the good news about Christ. There he proclaimed the gospel of the cross and the empty tomb. And he invited the Galatians to receive eternal life through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as a result of Paul's evangelistic efforts, new churches were planted throughout the region. Remember, Galatians, plural, is the introduction to this, to this book. More than one church. Yet shortly thereafter, a group of Jewish Christians, missionaries, arrived in Galatia to correct Paul's gospel. These men who came from Jerusalem are sometimes known as the, say it with me, as the Judaizers. We mentioned the, the Judaizers' effect upon the Galatians throughout this particular book. Paul calls them in chapter 2 false brethren. Notice the next, this, just the second paragraph if you follow it with me. He says, They preached a legalistic form of Christianity. They wanted Gentiles to become Jews in order to be good Christians. Thus, they were trying to add the law of Moses on top of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And under the influence of this teaching, the Galatians began to squander their newfound freedom in Christ. They were keeping Jewish traditions that were unnecessary for Christians. And some of them thought they had to get circumcised. Others were saying that it was mandatory to celebrate Passover and other Jewish festivals. In their effort to prove that they were good Christians, they were becoming enslaved to all kinds of Old Testament rituals. Look back with me in chapter 4, verse 10. You see the evidence from Paul's letter of that? He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. What were they doing? These people who had responded to the gospel were now becoming first-class legalists. And now it was about Jesus plus the most dangerous gospel that Paul resists and rejects in chapter 1 and the most dangerous way for a Christian to bring himself again under the law through a form of legalism. 
rather than to simply come under the Scriptures and what it means to know Christ and to grow in relationship with Him. So what do we have again? We have man's way and we have whose way? I just want to say, we have man's way and we have whose way? We have God's way. We have works and we have faith. We have human effort, we have promise. We have law and we have grace. And the results of one of these two that we're all in is either bondage or free. And verse 24 through 27 now, he's going to drive it home. And I want you to, I want to hear a lot of amens from you this morning because I had two weeks to work on this text, and it's a hard text, but I think I got it nailed down. Okay, so I want a lot of amens this morning, not for me, but for the Word of God. Please, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But notice he says in verse 24, this is allegorically speaking for these two, or these two women, they're two covenants. And he begins to talk about one, one proceeding from Mount Zionai, from Mount Sinai. And as soon as we hear Mount Sinai, we think of the, starts with an L, we think of the, the law, don't we? You got it. That's the first covenant that he's talking about. But notice how he begins this. He says, this is allegorically speaking in the New American Standard. Uh, the ESV says, this may be interpreted by allegory. And that's a terrible translation. I'm just going to tell you right off. Because it's not, it's not an allegory as we see an allegory. The NIV says these things may be taken figuratively. Now the word allegory or allegorically speaking in the New American Standard is what we call a transliteration of a word. And I want to take the time to go to that word because it is the word allegoreo. allegoreo. And when you hear that, it kind of sounds like the word allegory. Does it not? Please agree with me. That is because if they just as best they could, they took the Greek word and tried to say it in English. But the point is, what does Paul mean by that particular word? And it's a combination or a compound word of the word alos, alos, which is the word other, and the word agoreo. And you can see in the word agoreo, the little word that is agora, which is a term for the marketplace or where people would go to, to present a case or say different things. And Zodiades helps us well in his theological workbook of New Testament words by pointing out to us what Paul is simply saying is, I want to convey to you something in a different way, in another way. And I take the time to tell you that this morning because to interpret the Bible allegorically is dangerous. That's what's going on when people read something and they say, well, that means this to me and it has nothing to do with what the Bible says. And from the time way back to origin all the way up to the Reformation period, people used allegory as a way of interpreting scriptures and they came up with all kinds of strange things. Like, for instance, this morning, if I would use an example of the book of Job, and I would say Job, three, his three friends, they re represent the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you might say to me, where'd you get that? And I would say, well, allegorically speaking, which means I'm just finding it myself in some kind of different, different spirituality that only I know and you could never figure out, which means it's not there in the text. Would you say amen to that? So what he's saying is, I'm not giving you some new different spiritualized idea here. 
He's saying, I'm going to use a comparison and a figure of speech. I'm going to do an analogy. And he's driving it beyond the comparison that we've already got. And now he's going to give us two covenants. And one covenant that you've already mentioned has to do with Sinai. These two women, Sarah and Hagar, represent two covenants. One is symbolized in Mount Sinai. And notice in verse 24 what else he says, bearing children who are to be slaves. Then he just tells us, well, that's, that's Hagar. That's her. Bearing slaves. She speaks or represents the law and what was given at Sinai, that reality. He says uh, in Arabah or the Arabah, with reference to the location, the general location. If you Google today, where is Mount Sinai? It'll tell you somewhere in the Arabian Peninsula. And she, sp- respond, she compares or correlates to, look at verse 25. Tell me you're following me. Oh, thank you for three of you. Okay. Look at verse 25. She corresponds to, notice how he fleshes this out a bit. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. And he's telling you that the very condition relating under the law, I realize the law is good, but the law doesn't save, and you understand that this morning. I trust you do. He says it corresponds to present Jerusalem today. The present condition of a people that is in Jerusalem, Paul's people, Paul's people in Jerusalem, present Jerusalem, they remain, in the sense, connected to the Old Covenant, in slavery to the law as a means of righteousness. So he's saying both Sinai and Jerusalem are in the same spiritual condition as Hagar, spiritual slaves to bondage to the law. And that's what these Judaizers are selling you or presenting to you. But verse 26, but the Jerusalem above, whoa, wait a minute. Now we've got another Jerusalem? I thought there was only one. Ah, do you see his comparison that he's making? Now he's moving to a different Jerusalem, a a Jerusalem that is above. Well, if we press in the Scriptures and we look other places, we'll find passages like this. When in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of the book of Hebrews is telling us of the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 12, he refers to the fact of coming to him. He says, for you have not come to a a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and whirlwind. You're not coming through law. And if we move ahead to verse 22, he says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. What kind of Jerusalem? What's it say next? The, the heavenly Jerusalem. This is that Jerusalem from above. In fact, if we keep pressing in our Bible the idea of this heavenly Jerusalem or this new Jerusalem, we get all the way over into Revelation chapter 21. Do we not? And then we read that great passage in Revelation 21. Read it with me, would you? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And he's saying that in Sarah, in Sarah, we're connected, in promise, we're connected to this Jerusalem from above, this new Jerusalem. 
Paul doesn't call it the new covenant, but it is the idea of the new covenant. And he says, she's our mother. Verse 26. She, in terms of connecting this again, to Sarah. Now, how is that? She's our mother in the sense of Paul is identifying with them, with the Galatians, and he's saying she's our mother in the sense of being anchored in the faith and anchored in promise. And so we would even ask this morning, and I would perhaps I, be somebody here would say to me today, how do you get to that Jerusalem from above? Well, it's directly through the state of Wisconsin. Amen? How do you get to that Jerusalem from above? By being born from above. Nicodemus, from Jesus, you must be what? Born what? Born again. What does that word mean? In John chapter 3, exactly this, born from above. So how do we get to this Jerusalem from above? By being born from above. Isaac was born and came by miracle. There is the new covenant. Those in the new covenant come into this new Jerusalem by this new birth. And again, what do we have? We've got two ways. One of two ways you're going to get into this Jerusalem from above Man's way or, say it with me, God's way through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul is going to drive it home by quoting Isaiah 54, verse 1. I'm not going to have you turn there because I'm working our way to get to the application of this, but notice verse 27. And again, as a good lawyer speaking on behalf as God's emissary here and by the Holy Spirit, notice we have again, just as he began this, he says in verse 27, for it is written. What is he saying? I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm ba- backing my argument here with the Scriptures, with the Bible. Turn back to verse 22. How did he start it? For it is, how did he start verse 22? For it is, using the Scriptures. That does the same thing right there in verse 27. And what does he do down in verse 30? But what does the? Scriptures say. When the Bible repeats itself, it's not by accident. So what is Paul doing? He is grounding his argument in this historical event and in the Scriptures. And when we talk to people about anything with reference to God's way, we use the Bible. So he says, according to the Scriptures, and by enablement and direction of the Spirit of God, he quotes this passage from the book of Isaiah. Notice, rejoice, barren woman. Now in the context, who would probably be the barren woman who was unable to have children? It was Sarah. We're on this Jerusalem from above and descendants of Isaac. Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout. Now why should she rejoice in her barrenness? Why? He says, you you who are not in labor, for more numerous are the children of the desolate, that's her, than the one who has a husband probably with reference to Hagar. She should rejoice in the fact of her great descendants that's going to take place here. So Paul takes a passage from Isaiah 54 where the nation of Israel is in captivity and he tells them in Isaiah 54.1, you may be in captivity, but there are greater days to come and God is not finished with you. Even yet today, he's not finished with Israel. Amen? 
And he's telling me there are better days to come. And by the way, if you want to know of the better days to come for them, go back one chapter to Isaiah 53. Because Isaiah 53 is telling us there's one who's going to come and be the better way for all sinners. Can you say amen to that? And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. So he takes that passage and he relates it to Sarah and he relates to the way with reference to freedom. And the great descendants that resulted from what seemed to be an impossible situation. But I want to do a better, that, better job than that if I can. Rather than just calling this the new covenant, I want to let Jesus define for us. The old covenant is the law. Where do we find the new covenant that brings us grace and hope and takes us to the Jerusalem from above? Where do we find that? Do you know this familiar passage? I tend to use this passage whenever I do, and we had that last week, didn't we not? When we do the what? The, the Lord's Supper. And when Jesus had that last Passover, instituting the new Passover with his men and for the church, he says this. In the, it, the Bible says this in recording it, Paul recording it. In the same way he took the cup after supper saying, this covenant is the what? Now, found where? In the blood of Christ. There's the essence of the new covenant. It is Jesus Christ and him crucified and resurrected for sinners. So we got this old covenant, the old way man works Ishmael. We've got this new covenant, this this greater way that brings freedom through Isaac and by faith and through the miracle of him coming into this world and the miracle of regeneration in the life of a believer Old covenant law works human effort. New covenant grace and faith found in the gospel and in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 28 through chapter 5, verse 1, now he drives that home. Look at verse 28. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. What does he tell them, first of all? He's telling them in the gospel and in the gospel alone you become a child of promise a true son of Abraham. He's already dealt with that in the book. Every believer is like Isaac, miraculously born, not of yourself, on your way to the new Jerusalem, a true, a true child of God. And a promise, blessing of Abraham fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. All that promise comes to you. And beloved, as a child of promise, our faith is anchored where? In how we feel? In an experience that we've had? No, our faith is anchored in what? The promise of the Word of God. Say, how do I know that I'm saved? I believe God's Word. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be what? You'll be saved. And that's based upon God's promise. That's the only basis of our salvation, is that God comes through in whatever He promises, and the evidence of that is the Word of God. And Titus 1, 2 says, God who promises these things cannot lie. So how do you know if you know that you know that you're a believer? That by faith and faith alone, you say, I'm anchored in the promise of what God says he has done for sinners in Jesus Christ, and on the basis of that, if I believe by faith over and over and over again in the book of Galatians, that he'll forgive me of my sin and give me eternal life, and I'll be one day in the new Jerusalem. And you're on one side of this track or the other this morning. I pray that we're all together on the side of saying, amen, amen, amen. If I know anything, I know it's based not what I do, but what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, dying in my place and for my sin. So he says, hey, number one, in the gospel, you guys are, you're children of promise. 
Not about works. Second application he makes in verse 29. But as that time, at that time, as at that time, he was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac. Now notice what else he does. So it is now also that is with you. Now when, well, back to Genesis. Genesis 21, 8 through 10 tells us the child grew, and the context here is Isaac, and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, Ishmael, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, what's the next word? Mocking. Now when Ishmael, when Isaac is born and weaned about three, probably three years old, Ishmael is 12, 13, maybe 14 years old. So at that time, Ishmael's smart enough to know what's going on. And now all this celebration is going on with reverence to, with, with referring to Isaac as this great child miraculously given to Arab, Abraham and Sarah and the son of a covenant. But Ishmael says, now wait a minute, I was the one who was born first. And now he's mocking that or he's making life difficult for, for uh this young child that's come into this world. And that's why we're going to find next in verse 30, Sarah comes into the scene and what does she say? Get him out of there. But notice how Paul is using that and the application in verse 29 is this. He's telling the Galatians, if you stand firm in the gospel and in the gospel alone, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to pay a price for that. As he was against Isaac, So the Judaizers are going to persecute you if you stand in the gospel and in the gospel alone. Think of the Apostle Paul. Before he was converted to Christ, what did he endure? What did he do before he was converted to Christ? He persecuted Christians. After Paul was converted to Christ, what did he experience? Constant persecution, particularly by the descendants of, of his own people, by his own people of the Jews. He says, that's going to be true of you if you stand firm in the gospel. Every other religion is going to be against you if you say this is the only way, and the only way is the Lord Jesus Christ. But then look at verse 30, next application. He says, get the legalists out of your church. See, how do you get that? Look at verse 30. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. Now he's quoting Sarah saying, get, get Ishmael and get Hagar out of here. And Paul doesn't mix, doesn't... Paul is very firm when it comes to the gospel. And the Judaizers are messing with the gospel. And so Paul says, just as Sarah said to Abraham, get Ishmael and Hagar out of here, Paul is saying, get the Judaizers out of your churches. And as far as Plainfield Bible Church goes, to God be for all glory, if we're going to be God's kind of church, we must guard the gospel. And we must guard against a gospel 
that involves legalism as well, a kind of gospel that says, yes, it's Jesus plus these other things that you have to do to be a Christian, and those other things are not grounded in the Scriptures. The Scriptures tell us plenty of things that we ought to do and how we ought to live based upon what Christ has done. Can you say amen to that? But you go outside of that, you're doing exactly what the Judaizers were doing. You're adding law to grace. Fourth application, he says, don't turn your freedom into bondage. Don't turn that thing in. Don't turn around and be bound again to the law. Look at verse 31. So then, brethren, we're not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. So chapter 5, verse 1. And see how it connects? He says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, what? Keep standing firm, that is in the gospel, and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Where are you going to find that? When you add faith and works and try to blend them together. Paul's saying, man, you're going right back to a a different gospel in chapter 1. Paul takes us right back to the main thing. Where do we find freedom? We find it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Freedom from what? The bondage of faith of salvation by works. The bondage of salvation by law. How are we really free? John chapter 8, verse 36. I don't have this on the overhead, but you know it. Jesus said this. If the Son has set you free, you shall be what? Free indeed. So stand firm in the gospel. Don't go back to some other kind of bondage that they're offering you that takes the joy of being free in Christ and having your sins forgiven and the joy of your salvation that robs you of that if you add anything to Christ and him crucified, the very message that the Apostle Paul preached everywhere that that he went. Rejoice in your freedom, beloved. Not a freedom to do whatever you want, but a freedom now to please God. And not out of guilt or not out of bondage or not out of trying to gain merit, but simply because you love him because he's first loved you. Amen? What a freedom. Freedom to rejoice in your salvation. The freedom, you know you're right with God because of what he's done. And even when you blow it, by the grace of God, you're his child. And nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8. And anything you can imagine, Paul's already covered it in the rest of that chapter. Would it surprise you this morning? that one of my favorite movies has to do with a horse? Would that surprise you this morning? One of my favorite movies is the movie Hildago. I didn't hear you all go, hey, man, that's a great movie. (laughs) Okay. Well, in that movie, it's the story of a life or the traditions that are recorded about a guy in the late 1800s by the name of John Hopkins, and he did long-distance races on his horse, a Mustang, and he was known for winning them in the endurance. He, he just boasted in the endurance of the, of the American wild Mustang horse. And at the end of the movie, he rides out into the range on his famous horse that he ran all these races and won all these races with. And he rides out, out there, and they're releasing hundreds of wild Mustangs back into the range. And he goes there, and he gets off of Hildago, name of the horse, and he unsaddles him, gets off of him, he unsaddles him, take his saddle blanket off of him, 
And then he grabs his bridle, takes the bridle off and the bit out of his mouth, and he just points that beautiful stallion off to that wild Mustangs, and the stallion runs off there and joins the free wild Mustangs. And I'll tell you what he didn't do. He didn't run back to John Hopkins and say, in horse language, give me some freedom here. Could I please have that heavy saddle on my back again? Could I have you sitting on me again? And that bit in my mouth? Why would a horse? Horse doesn't have a very big brain. I know so. I've got one. They don't have a very big brain, but they're smart enough to know if you're free, you don't go back into what? Bondage. Paul says, don't be saddled with the bondage of the law. Enjoy your life in Christ. Enjoy your freedom. Praise God for it every day. And don't let somebody saddle you with anything other than the Word of God. If they saddle you with the Word and say, this is what God's Word says, tell them thank you. If they place any other restrictions on your life that is not anchored in the Scriptures, tell them thank you again, but do what Paul said with reference to the Judaizers. And he tells them to take a hike. Amen? Praise God for what we have, the freedom that we have, only in Jesus Christ, not in human merit, not in human effort, not in our works. Let's let's thank him for it. Bow in prayer with me, please. Father, as best I could to present the wonder of Paul's incredible legal argument, pushing us always back to Christ. As we heard this morning from Philippians, what's our goal? It's to please Christ. It's to please God. And to be able to do that, knowing that you've been made right with him through the cross, and then to experience the joy of our salvation, how we thank you for that. So may our lives reflect and may our message be heard that our, our faith is anchored in Christ and Christ alone. I pray that's true for you today. And I do pray these things in his name. And everybody said, amen.